Good afternoon. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic Energy and Environmental Policy will come to order. I want to thank the ranking member, Senator Merkley. Uh, I'm grateful once again for our, our continued bipartisanship on a range of issues. The title for today's hearing is A Multilateral and Strategic Response to International Predatory Economic Practices. Now, this hearing falls squarely within this subcommittee's jurisdiction, which includes multilateral institutions and international economic policy. Today, we have an impressive group of experts joining us to discuss this important issue. Our witnesses today include Mr. Matthew Goodman, the Simon Chair in Political Economy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mr. Michael Wessel, a commissioner with the U.S.-China Economic and Security Commission. Mr. Kimberly Glass, Executive Director of the Blue-Green Alliance, and Dr. Robert Atkinson, President of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Welcome all. Given the excellent group of experts, I'm eager to hear from each of you. Uh, before we do so, however, uh, allow me to make a few comments to frame and catalyze our discussion this afternoon. Let me state up front my premise for this hearing. I believe America's national security rests largely on an economic foundation and that predatory economic practices by China and others have undermined that foundation for years. If left unaddressed, these predatory practices will further endanger not only the prosperity of Americans, but also our security. That's why I believe we need to respond in a smart, multilateral, and strategic manner. That requires us, as you write in your prepared statement, Mr. Goodman, to start with cool-headed analysis of the challenges and opportunities that face the United States. It's clear that China is not the only country engaged in predatory economic practices. However, China's predatory economic practices are unique in their scope, their nature, severity, and consequences. As you wrote in your prepared statement, Dr. Atkinson, China is in its own league when it comes to fielding predatory economic and trade policies and practices. Dr. Atkinson, you summarize quite nicely the challenges that many Hoosiers and Hoosier companies have confronted in dealing with China. I've seen it firsthand. You write, quote, China has deployed a vast panoply of innovation mercantilist practices that seek to unfairly advantage Chinese advanced industry producers. These practices have included forced technology transfer and forced local production as a condition of market access, theft of intellectual property, curtailment of even out or e and even outright denial of access to Chinese markets in certain sectors, manipulation of technology standards, special benefits for state-owned enterprises, capricious cases to force foreign companies to license technology at a discount, massive subsidies, and government-subsidized acquisitions of or investments in foreign enterprises. And that's not a comprehensive list. These deliberate and systematic practices by Beijing have not only hurt our economy, American businesses, and American workers, they have also undermined, as I started with, our national security. As someone who served in the U.S. Marine Corps, I know the U.S. military uh, depends primarily on two things if we're going to maintain our superiority. Number one, the quality of American service members, and number two, the maintenance of the U.S. military's technological advantages. 
Through a variety of means, including outright and systematic theft, China's predatory economic practices have eroded and continue to erode our military's technological superiority. In some key defense capabilities, China now fields military equipment and weapons that are as advanced or more advanced than what American service members have. As Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Joe Dunford has said, our military's competitive advantage has eroded and it's no longer as decisive as it was some years ago. Now that's deeply concerning and of course not acceptable to we Americans. That eroding American military superiority makes conflict with China more likely and decreases the likelihood that America would prevail in the event of a military conflict. So in short, to reiterate, both our prosperity and our security are at stake. What's also is at stake is something more general, more sy systematic. It's the rules-based international economic order that helped the United States uh, flourish for years, that the United States incidentally helped establish, that has served U.S. interests, and that has enabled the largest expansion and prosperity in world history. However, if we're candid, we must admit, as Thomas Dosterberg did in his Wall Street Journal article last month, that efforts to integrate China into the post-war system and to encourage political liberalization ha haven't met expectations. China's failed to fulfill its obligations and commitments, and as you write, Mr. Wessel, the U.S. has essentially failed to address Chinese industrial policy since its membership in the WTO. Now is the time to change course. Based on this diagnosis, we must ask how best to respond to this fundamental and historic challenge. Now that's why Senators Merkley, Rubio, and Coons joined me in introducing last month the bipartisan National Economic Security Strategy Act of 2018. This legislation would create a statutory requirement for the periodic production and submission to Congress of a national economic security strategy. This would complement and support the national security strategy with more focus on U.S. economic interests. This isn't about undercutting our free market economy or promoting excessive government intrusion in the private sector. Far from it. The federal government has an appropriately limited but still important role in facilitating the ability of the United States to compete successfully in the international economy that's so vital to our prosperity and our security. We want that federal role to be as optimal as, poli uh, as possible. We want it to be thoughtful, effective, not reflexive, uncoordinated, ad hoc, and counterproductive. That's something Republicans and Democrats alike can agree on, I know. In many cases, that means catalyzing and empowering the private sector. It also means habitually and effectively standing up for Americans and American companies when they confront predatory economic and trade practices. It also means identifying allies and partners who have similarly suffered from Beijing's predatory economic practices and building an international multilateral coalition to apply maximal pressure to persuade Beijing to end its predatory practices. As you write in your prepared statement, Mr. Wessel, the entire world economy has been impacted by China's predatory international economic and business practices, and that provides an opportunity for coalition building to address China's policies and practices. 
In short, and as I conclude, the goal of our legislation is to ensure federal policies, statutes, regulations, and procedures are optimally de designed and implemented to facilitate the competitiveness, prosperity, and security of the United States. That's why I believe our legislation is so important and why I look forward to advancing it. I also look forward to hearing the assessments of our witnesses regarding our legislation. So with, with those thoughts in mind, I'd now like to call on our ranking member, Senator Merkley, for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you, Chairman Young. Pleasure to be here with you, working in a bipartisan way to look out for America's interests and to protect American workers from being hurt by international predatory economic practices. What really makes America great is our entrepreneurial spirit, looking at problems as challenges and challenges as opportunities. We're problem solvers. We believe in innovation to improve technology and to improve standards for the social impacts of manufacturing, trade, investment, and other business activities. As Americans are focused on product innovation, some predatory nations are instead focused on gaming, trade, and finance systems. Our businesses and workers can outcompete anyone on a level playing field, but all too often the field is not level. China is not the only country engaged in predatory economic practices, but it is a clear leader in flouting international standards and ignoring agreements and terms that get in the way of its drive to control markets. Too often in negotiating trade agreements, we have been mesmerized, almost hypnotized by the mirage of bountiful Chinese consumer markets, and we have ignored, failed to understand, or failed to adequately respond to aggressive and often illegal barriers that China has erected to protect its own markets, to steal American intellectual property, and to disrupt world markets with a flood of goods and services subsidized by the China's, Chinese government in a whole host of ways. American companies and workers should not be penalized for adhering to fair, humane, responsible labor and environmental standards, to name just a few which shouldn't be our goal to race to the bottom. We need to therefore make sure that rules in trade, rules that relate to labor standards and environmental standards are fairly enforced. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today and to continue working with my colleague, Chairman Young, on how we can proceed to ensure that American entrepreneurial spirit does well and that our businesses thrive. Well, thank you, Senator Merkley. And once again, I want to welcome all of our expert witnesses. Uh, your full written statements will be included in the record. I'd ask each of you to summarize your statements here today within five minutes so we can engage in an extended Q&A period. Uh, let's go in the order that I announced you, please. Uh, Mr. Goodman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Ranking Member. Uh, in the few minutes I have, let me just make three main points. First, we have a problem. The international economic order, as you said, that is the institutions, the rules, the norms that the United States created and championed for 70 years and have contributed enormously to our prosperity and security, that order is under stress. It's under stress at home because it's seen as having failed to deliver the kind of strong growth and shared benefits in recent years that it did in the decades following World War II. This has undermined support for our engagement in the world. Abroad, the order is also under stress from new powers, 
that are unhappy with a seating arrangement at the global governance table that was set when these new challengers were weak. They want change. Among these powers, China poses a unique and fundamental challenge for the United States. On one hand, our economies are deeply intertwined and we need China to help solve a range of transnational challenges. We cannot contain or isolate China. On the other hand, China is an economic and strategic competitor, as you said. China wants to sit at the head of the table, especially in the vital Asia-Pacific region. Moreover, this is no longer the China of Deng Xiaoping or Zhu Rongji, reformers. Under Xi, Jin, under Xi Jinping, China has slowed or reversed moves to reform and open the Chinese economy and has reinforced some very problematic policies from our point of view. The Bill of Particulars is well known, and I'm sure my colleagues are going to elaborate. Subsidies to national champions, forced technology transfer, tilting the competitive playing field in favor of Chinese firms and against uh, foreign firms. Most worrisome, Beijing has used the, those policies to support Made in China 2025, its ambitious plan to capture dominant market shares in 10 key industries of the future, from artificial intelligence to advanced biotechnology. We cannot cede leadership in those areas without a fair fight. Abroad, meanwhile, China is using its newfound economic clout to coerce smaller countries. It's bending or breaking the rules in established institutions like the WTO while setting up its own parallel institutions. And it's using its ambitious Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative to assert economic and geopolitical influence across Asia and beyond. So we have a problem one of the most difficult and consequential of our age, in my view. My second point is that we can meet this challenge if we're smart and confident and don't exaggerate our fears. We should begin with a cool-headed analysis, as you said, of what the most important threats and opportunities are. Not everything China does is motivated by a desire to beat us in the geostrategic game. Not all of its plans are likely to succeed. I would much rather have our hand than the one that China has been dealt. That said, to meet the complex challenge of a rising China, we need a comprehensive economic strategy that includes several key elements. First, we need to play offense as well as defense. Yes, we need to protect critical assets and technology. Yes, we need to brush China back when it doesn't play by the rules, and in doing so, make sure that we follow the rules ourselves. But we also need a proactive strategy that promotes growth, opens markets, and creates high standard rules of the road for the international economy that others are incentivized to follow. With clear, neutral rules and contestable markets, American companies win every time. This is what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was intended to achieve. Withdrawing from it was a huge mistake, in my view. If we aren't going to return to TPP, we need something to replace it. We need allies and like-minded partners for all of this, both the defensive and offensive parts. We should be pulling them in, not slapping them with tariffs or tearing up prior agreements. The strategy also needs to be whole of government, actually whole of nation, drawing in all the tools of US power, all relevant government agencies, as well as state and local players in the private sector and labor. And a smart economic strategy needs to rest on strong domestic foundations. We need to rediscover the winning formula that brought us such success in the post-war period, state-of-the-art infrastructure, education and skills training to prepare workers for the new economy, investment in basic R&D critical to leadership and in industries of the future. My third and final point is that Congress has an important role to play in all of this. First, you can enact relevant legislation, starting with uh, S-2757 introduced by the chairman and ranking member to require the executive branch to prepare and regularly update a much needed national economic security strategy. 
S-2736, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, introduced by Senator Gardner and others on this committee, would also create useful tools to strengthen our economic statecraft in the vital Asia-Pacific region. I also like the BUILD Act, the CFIUS reform, export control, approval of a capital increase at the World Bank, many other things. We also need to fund critical agencies like OPIC and EXIM. And finally, if I may just say, I think you need to assert your constitutional authority over trade. Um, I think that you should insist that the administration not do damage to our international obligations or our alliances, and that it come up with a coherent trade st strategy to open markets and strengthen international rules. I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Goodman. Mr. Wessel. Uh, Chairman Young, uh, Ranking Member Merkley, uh, I want to thank you for the inf invitation to appear before you today. Uh, my name is Michael Wessel, and I'm appearing before you today wearing two hats. First, as a commissioner on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, and second, as a representative of the AFL-CIO and its 12 million members. But as a disclaimer, the normal Washington disclaimer, I am speaking for myself although my comments are informed by my service on the commission and my work with organized labor over my entire career in Washington. This hearing comes at a critical time. The subcommittee's broad jurisdiction over international trade, our country's participation in international trade organizations, protection of intellectual property, and technology transfers make it a key player in the issues confronting our country. My prepared testimony focused on these issues in the context of China, although, of course, our problems are much broader. The USTR's most recent National Trade Estimates report is a more than 500-page catalog of the market barriers and trade constraints that our companies face around the globe. It identifies policies that limit our exports, destroy jobs, and undermine our economic and national security. We have seen the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs, the shuttering of tens of thousands of facilities, the rise of income inequality, and the stagnation of wages. Trade policy plays a significant role in each of those issues. We have seen workers' rights and environmental sustainability used as competitive tools by other countries to attract investment, helping to fuel outsourcing and offshoring. China's predatory and protectionist policies right now are the greatest threat to our interests. We ran a more than $375 billion trade deficit with them last year. But it is not just the size of the trade deficit, but its composition that should concern us. Last year, the U.S. ran an advanced technology products trade deficit with China of roughly $135 billion. China's practices run the gamut, as you said, Mr. Chairman, from dumping and subsidies to forced technology transfers to licensing and joint venture requirements, bans on activities in certain sectors, and a broad range of other activities, many of which I outlined in my testimony. On their own, these are of enormous concern, but other countries are emulating China's acts as they see the opportunity to receive some, quote-unquote, success in terms of advancing their own economic interests. Countries are continuing to support and build their state-owned entities. They are advancing their economic goals through state-led development policies and engaging in other actions. Our first priority is addressing the negative impact of China's actions on our economic and national security interests. Those issues can't be treated as separate inboxes on the president's desk. The two issues, as you noted, are inextricably intertwined. 
When China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, many believed that they would reform their policies and become a more rules-oriented society. Unfortunately, those goals were not achieved and our workers, our companies, and our economy have paid the price. The original protocol of accession had significant flaws as, and has contributed to our problems. And the WTO has not been up to the task of addressing China's mercantilism. I believe that we should have strong rules that are effectively enforced. China has made clear what its priorities are, and we should believe them. Through the 13th five-year plan, the Made in China 2025 program, and many other policy pronouncements, they are seeking to advance their capabilities and dominate sector after sector. Some of the key sectors of the future, artificial intelligence, telecom, robotics, autonomous vehicles, and others, are targeted for massive subsidies and state support. China is seeking to advance its capabilities indigenously through joint ventures, through acquisitions, and through other legal and illegal means. One of China's bilateral priorities is for the U.S. to uh, relax its investment restrictions. But China's outward-bound investments are generally subject to government approval, and as such, they should be viewed as what they are policies to advance the interests of the Chinese Communist Party and the country without market economics as the key concern. In my brief remaining time, let me highlight two action items that were authored by members of this subcommittee. First, as was noted, is the National Economic Security Strategy Act of 2018, which is an important bipartisan bill requiring an assessment of our nation's competitiveness and our security challenges and provides for the publication of an action plan to address those issues. A comprehensive approach to these challenges is sorely needed. Second is S2566, the level playing field in Global Trade Act of 2018 introduced by Senator Merkley. This legislation would ensure that trade agreements include enforceable standards to promote living wages and ensure sustainable production methods. We must not allow attacks on our workers or the environment to continue to undermine our own living standard and environmental regime. New trade agreements can be a force for progress if they are con correctly constructed and properly enforced. Mr. Chairman, again, thank you. Mr. Merkley, thank you for your leadership, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Wessel. Ms. Glass. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, for inviting me here today. On behalf of my organization, our national labor unions and environmental partners, and the millions of members and supporters they represent, I want to thank you for holding this important discussion. I want to start out by acknowledging and agreeing that we need to take a holistic approach to ensuring American industries are competitive in the global marketplace. A national strategy is needed to address illegal, unfair, and predatory trade practices that deprive the American people of their economic and national security, many of which I list in my testimony and many have been discussed by witnesses today. These and other practices drive down labor costs, increase offshoring and job loss, and at the same time contribute to the erosion of our environment and increase pollution. This subcommittee's attention and discussion about a more comprehensive, thoughtful, and coordinated strategy comes at an important time. Other nations are making long-term economic plans to dominate the global economy. 
If we fail to plan, we will lose the race for jobs in clean energy technology, clean vehicles, and the materials that go into them like steel and aluminum, among other industries. We cannot allow that to happen. We believe that the issues of fair trade, workers' rights, and the health of our environment are inextricably linked to America's success. Trade agreements should have strong enforcement mechanisms and include strong and binding labor and environmental protections, including wage and environmental standards in their core text. These standards must be enforced. We cannot allow other nations to ignore environmental and labor standards in an attempt to undermine our markets and gain competitive advantage. Let me give you a couple quick examples. As you'll note in my written testimony, the relocation and offshoring of a lead battery processing facility from the United States to Mexico is well documented. This offshoring was a result of weak labor and environmental standards in Mexico and had tremendous consequences for the economy here in the US and resulted in very real public health impacts in Mexico. Just one battery processing plant in northern Mexico emitted 33 times the amount of lead that a plant owned by the same company was expected to emit in South Carolina. As we all know, many energy-intensive trade-exposed industries in the United States, like steel, aluminum, cement, paper, and many others, have been under siege as a result of predatory trade practices. The offshoring of these industries to countries with weak or unenforced labor and environmental laws has exasperated carbon pollution and environmental degradation and is crippling both our economy and our environment, as well as the environment of our trade competitors. This is why we must defend and advance policies that reward companies that play by the rules. The Blue-Green Alliance has long supported Buy America and other procurement policies that support workers and industries. One such procurement policy that is a complementary to Buy America policies has been passed into law in California actually just last year. The policy is called Buy Clean and it promotes spending taxpayer dollars on infrastructure supplies and materials that are made in a cleaner, more efficient, and environmentally friendly manner. As many of you may be aware, the San Francisco Bay Bridge reconstruction project procured steel from a Chinese manufacturer instead of an American company. The Blue Green Allowance Foundation research found that an estimated 180,000 tons of carbon emissions would have been averted, equivalent to taking 38,000 cars off the road had the steel been procured from a US supplier. It would also have shifted the purchase of steel to an American company rather than a foreign competitor. There is a large difference in the amount of pollution generated by our industries compared to that of other nations. Steel production from China alone accounts for roughly 4% of global emissions. The story about the Bay Bridge project led the state of California to establish the first of its kind buy clean procurement criteria to incentivize the use of more cleanly produced materials like steel. We strongly support replicating this model in other places across the country and federally. Procurement policy is just one tool, but not the only tool to help level the playing field for both workers and the environment. There are many other enforcement mechanisms that would be deployed in conjunction in these, with these policies. We are glad that both the chair and the ranking member are taking action on this issue and amplifying the need to develop a broader, more comprehensive plan to ensure that our own industries are safeguarded, supported, and allowed to flourish in the global economy. There's a lot of work to do, and we welcome the opportunity to work with you. In closing, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, 
allow me to thank you for the, the important work that you're doing and for granting me the opportunity to speak today. Well, thank you for being here, Ms. Glass. Dr. Atkinson. Uh, good afternoon, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, ITIF has long focused on these questions of U.S. economic competitiveness and the role that foreign, unfair, or predatory practices play in hurting our ability to be competitive. And I couldn't agree more with Senator Young, your comment that national security depends upon economic security. And that understanding, frankly, has not been widely shared in Washington. I still think we stovepipe those issues. <clears throat> we see national security in, in one group of, of responsibilities and economic security as another. Uh, in the, uh, Mr. Wessel alluded to this, but in the 1990s, this was a quite a heady time for Washington. Uh, there was a Washington consensus on trade. It held that, uh, uh, helped form the World Trade Organization, which was going to lead to a new world of uh, better trade disputes, uh, more products and processes and measures uh, covered, more countries covered. Uh, we looked forward to China joining the WTO with the belief that their deeper participation would lead to a, be a fundamentally liberalizing force. Uh, it was supposedly, according to one pundit at the time, the end of history, which meant it was our model that was going to dominate the world. It was the end of all these other models. Unfortunately, we've learned very clearly uh, and painfully that that was not the case. The WTO has simply proven itself less than fully capable of challenging rampant innovation mercantilist practices, particularly from non-rule of law countries. It just simply was not set up to, to adjudicate practices from non-rule of law countries. And the Chinese know how to use that loophole to their advantage. And China clearly, rather than moving towards our model, have gone uh, in the other direction. You mentioned a, a number of different practices. I won't go through all of those, but I will say that the China model, the Chinese menu or playbook, is really elegantly simple. People think it's more complicated than it is. It's elegantly simple, and it's really four key steps. Number one, is, it's their understanding uh, and commitment that they want to be global, have global competitive advantage, if not domination, in virtually all technology industries. Most countries embrace uh, Ricardo uh, trade theory, which is that we're good at some things and others are good at things and then we trade. Chinese don't believe that fundamentally. The Chinese government wants to be good at everything, uh, at least in advanced industries. Second, they lack the technology and the capability and the knowledge to be able to be dominant right now. It's going to take them a long time to catch up in an organic way. And they know that and so their whole strategy is about stealing it coercing it or buying the technology and the knowledge with state-backed subsidies. Once their national champions get these, uh, this, this knowledge or this technology, they then, the government lavishes subsidies and other protections and benefits so those companies can scale up in the Chinese market. And once they've done that, they then again lavish a whole set of export subsidies and other benefits so that they can take over global markets. There are some who assert that this hasn't hurt the U.S. economy. I would differ. Uh, I think when you look at careful studies, you find that about half of the U.S. manufacturing job loss in the 2000s was due to unfair foreign trade practices. I think the risk could be very well worse going forward because in the past, uh, those maybe industries that eventually would have been shed naturally in global trade, uh, leaving us the advanced industries that we are good at. But today, as we've heard, the Chinese are going after those advanced industries. Uh, this will not only have an economic effect, but it will certainly, as Chairman Young, you've alluded to, have a national security effect. 
So what should the government do? What should the federal government do? I think, number one, uh, and Mr. Goodman alluded to this, we have to do this with our allies. His history has shown that when our allies, particularly the Europeans and the Japanese, collaborate with us and force and pressure the Chinese, that they will back down. We have to continue to do that and step that up. But there are steps we can do unilaterally uh, and that Congress can take a lead role. And one, uh, several people have mentioned, is update CFIUS. Uh, the Chinese have been uh, very good at, mani at manipulating and finding loopholes in the CFIUS process, and the current efforts in the Senate and the House to strengthen that are well advised. Um, secondly, uh, the we, we support the passage of the National Economic and Security and Strategy Act. Uh, if for no other reason than to begin to get all the federal agencies and the White House and the different bodies to really think as one body in one mind to connect all the dots and really move forward with that. Um, there's a, quite a simple step we've, we've argued, which is that while USTR publishes several reports, including the National Trade Estimates, you can read that long, long report and you still really don't get a sense of who's the worst and who's the best. And we've argued that USTR needs to produce a ranking, what we've called it a global mercantilist index that ranks every country in the world on how egregious their practices are. And for the bottom worst ones, we should just simply start making them have penalties. I don't see any reason why we provide foreign aid through AID uh, or general systems of preferences tariff relief to countries that are unrepentant mercantilists. And the World Bank continues to do that. Uh, they provided uh, billions of dollars of funding to China most recently. Uh, again, I don't see any logic for giving money to mercantilist countries until they change their behavior. And finally, um, we need to take steps uh, here, here at home. Um, I think, a number of people mentioned this, expanding export, XM bank financing. Uh, we've established uh, under, under congressional rules the uh, RAMI Act, Renew America's Manufacturing Innovation. We have a number of centers, continue to fund those, STEM education. Uh, I know Congress just passed a tax reform bill, but I would encourage at some point going back and expanding the R&D tax credit, where we're ranked 27th in the world in R&D tax ge credit generosity. Uh, and finally, I think we need a, uh, our own Made in USA 2030, not the way the Chinese do it, but we, need to, we know some of the key technologies going forward in the future, and we need to support pre-competitive research in those areas. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Atkinson. So I started with a premise uh, that uh, was actually included, I believe, in, in the testimony of, of many of you, but uh, I just want to make sure that... Uh, Operating under this premise is, is uh, something on which we have, uh, if not universal agreement, at, at least broad ag agreement. In my opening statement, I, I asserted America's national security rests largely on an economic foundation, something just reaffirmed by uh, Dr. Atkinson. Predatory economic practices by China and others, India and Brazil, come to mind, have undermined that foundation for years. If left unaddressed, these predatory practices will further endanger not only the prosperity of Americans, but also our security. Um, yes or no question, Dr. Atkinson, you just answered it. Uh, yes, uh, there's a linkage between the predatory practices and security. You agree, sir? Yes. Um, Ms. Glass, Mr. Wessel, and Mr. Goodman. Okay, very good. Mr. Wessel, you referenced a rules-based international economic order, uh, I believe. You may, you may have also done so, Mr. Goodman. I know you're familiar 
with the concept. I'm going to ask you, Mr. Goodman, um, how has a rule, the rules-based international economic order over the years helped the American people? Well, as, thank you, Senator. As I alluded to in my um, testimony, the, if, you, if you create a system with neutral rules and contestable markets, American companies win every time. I, I have no doubt that if we have rules that work to, our, uh, to the general advantage on a neutral level, we're going to win. Um, and that's been proven over and over again over the last 70 years. And so I think the rulemaking part of these um, efforts are still critically important. I know that um, uh, there are some who feel that, that we have created a system of rules that is easily exploitable, and that's not untrue. But, uh, but if we enforce the rules, uh, I think that's the, the best path forward. And I think this, this order has been um, uh, spectacularly successful for us, and I think we should extend it. There are new rules that need to be established, for example, in the digital economy, uh, where, again, not to beat a flog a dead horse, but, uh, but TPP had a, a good set of disciplines. Uh, just before he left office, Mike Froman, uh, the USTR who negotiated uh, uh, TPP, produced something called the Digital Two Dozen, which I'm sure Rob and others are familiar with, highlighting some of the rules that were established, things like free flows of data, um, uh, an open internet, um, no duties on uh, cross-border uh, digital commerce. Um, and, you know, those rules would really have worked in our advantage. And the fact that we don't have that, we got to do something else to try and establish those rules. So I'm, I'm a big believer that the rules-based order has been good for the United States and we should extend it. And enforce it. Okay. I, you know, I've got a follow-up to that because I, I've, I've read uh, your materials and, and uh, Dr. Atkinson, uh, um, some of his thinking on, on this matter. And um, Dr. Dr. Atkinson has, has reminded me that, you know, the world doesn't operate the way a, a neoclassical economics textbook operates. That is, it's not only firms or enterprises that compete in the world, countries actually compete with one another economically which in turn impacts not just your economic competitiveness, but uh, your security and, and uh, uh, advancing your values as a, as a country. Is there a tension between uh, this rules-based international economic order on one hand, which uh, is not supposed to advantage any particular country, but also a recognition that it does advantage the United States of America? How, do you, how, how, how would we reconcile um, that fact. Yes. Yeah. Um, thanks, Senator. So I believe that at the end of the day, you're right, that states do compete, and I think others are tilted, putting their thumb on the scale. There's no question. China is, you know, in that top group. They, they make the top ten Incidentally, list sure. I should interject. I unapologetically want America to win. Right. Right? Understood. We, we all do. I think but, that, yeah. that the, the point is, I think at the end of the day, we compete best when there's an open rules-based system. If yeah. we try and shut things down, if we try and play this game the way others are playing it, I think we lose. I think we're better off when we have a basically a commitment to openness, to markets, to, uh, to rules. And uh, that's been proven over and over again. I think we do have a challenge with China. I'm not diminishing that, that challenge. But I think we can win. Dr. Atkinson? Do you think the Chinese can also win in the long term, uh, that their people can benefit uh, from a rules-based international economic order? I think the Chinese 
people would, would be much better off if the Chinese had a different economic strategy. Yeah. For example, when you look at a program they had called the SNED, the, sorry, not the SNED, the SEI, the Strategic and Emerging Industries Program, this was a massive funneling of hundreds of billions of dollars into a few industries. We calculated that if they were successful in that, they would have essentially achieved about 14 months of productivity, equivalent of what 14 months of productivity growth would have been. China fundamentally is going to follow the path of Korea and Japan, which is they have very high productivity and innovation in a few sectors that export, but the rest of their economy is incredibly inefficient. Their retail sector, their banking sector, their wholesale, and they fundamentally don't focus on that. We do in the U.S. Our view is that markets should allow innovation and productivity in all sectors. So I, I don't even think the Chinese strategy is a good strategy for the Chinese people. It's maybe a good strategy for the Chinese government. When China joined the WTO, Dr. Atkinson, uh, in order to get access to global markets and be protected from unilateral actions uh, against uh, its unfair trading practices, it made a binding set of commitments uh, to all the other signatories that it was going to live by. Um, Dr. Atkinson, Mr. Wessel, for Americans who may not be following this issue, issue as closely as, as you do, which is just about every single American, what general types of commitments did Beijing make in order to get WTO membership? And generally speaking, uh, has Beijing fulfilled these commitments? So uh, we, my colleague Stephen Azell wrote a report for ITIF called False Promises. And what it did is it looked at what the WTO president at the time was hearing from China and expected China to do in 2000 and 2001. And there was an entire book that he wrote with a colleague, and they listed everything the Chinese were going to do. A less dominant role for state-owned enterprise, more protection of intellectual property, fewer subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. We went through and we looked at every commitment the Chinese made, and it turns out they, they, they uh, com committed to none of them. Hmm. So they made essentially a wide array of false promises and they didn't live up to any of them. Mr. Goodman, uh, your assessment, is it? I, I agree that there have been, um, uh, I haven't actually read Stephen's report, but uh, that sounds right. There are a lot of promises that have not been fulfilled. On the other hand, China did do some things early on to formally implement WTO and that produced you know, some huge benefits for our uh, for our companies who are investing there and trading there. So I think it's a little more complex than that, but I don't disagree that there are a large number of areas where they did not uh, follow through. Mr. Chairman, if I could uh, just add, uh, part yes. of the problem is one of perception in the sense of what we believe we mean when we negotiate and what they hear may be two very different things. A good example was the MOU on uh, cybersecurity two years, three years ago. Uh, China committed that it would not engage in cybersecurity for economic gain. Um, I think they left the negotiating table laughing because as your original uh, proposition was, they view economic security and national security as the same thing. So committing to not engaging in cybersecurity for economic gain was easy, it meant nothing. When you look at many of their early commitments, they are a non-market-based economy, state-led capitalism, they view the commitments in a different way for the ones that were being made. I'm looking forward to asking some more detailed questions about uh, uh, particular ways uh, the Chinese are, are violating this, this rules-based order we benefited from, but uh, I'm gonna turn it over to Senator Merkley. 
Uh, thank you. And Dr. Atkinson, you mentioned that China often engages in stealing technology. And one of the things they often do is require joint partnerships, joint ventures for American companies, companies doing business in China. And when I looked into it, it appears that this is something that we agreed that they could do in the agreement when they entered the WTO. Is that correct? My understanding uh, is, well, there's a WTO protocol that says you cannot condition market access on technology transfer. What the Chinese do is they do not have a written rule. They don't have a law or a regulation that says that. And they know specifically why they don't want to have that written down on a piece of paper, because it would bring a WTO case against them. All of those conditions of market access are, I shouldn't say all, but lion's share of those are all informal discussions. They're informal messages. They're, 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 they're subtle things that are very clearly, though, told to a company, if you want to be in our market, you have to do a joint venture. Or you have, sorry, you have to give technology access. Okay, that's, that's very interesting because uh, what, I, what I saw was, was saying that that had been stipulated that they had permission to do that. Anyone disagree with that? They do have the permission and there are many areas where they are, where foreign participants are required to engage in joint ventures. I think what uh, Rob was saying is that the government cannot condition the technology transfer by the government, but by requiring you to engage in a joint venture, and when you engage in that, your joint venture partner says, if you want to join with us, you have to transfer your technology. It's, again, going back to the way I described yes. it earlier, it's, um, you know, form over substance. So as a time come when we need to renegotiate this, the terms for their accession to WTO or their continu continuation, does it still make sense to have a, an, an agreement in which they can require our companies to be part of a joint venture? but we don't require their companies to do the same. Mr. Wessel? Uh, I certainly think we should be eliminating most of those uh, requirements, but I also believe we have to be careful about using a bilateral investment treaty as the vehicle to do it. We've seen that the uh, Chinese don't necessarily adhere to the rule of law. We do. So if we give them enhanced access to our investment market, our, our uh, FDI here, I'm not so sure they're going to do it there. 46% of Chinese exports emanate from foreign invested enterprises. So the problem we may also have is by easing the way for U.S. companies to move there without JVs, they may still use China as an export platform undermining job growth and production here in the U.S. Uh, th thank you. I want to show you all a few charts. I'm going to start with a uh, map of the United States and this essentially shows state by state the net U.S. jobs displaced due to the goods trade deficit with China as a share of total state employment. Now, if you could see a list like the one I have in my hand, but would be too small to read, you would see that Oregon is at the top of the list for the most displaced jobs due to the trade deficit with China. Indiana is number uh, 11. I do find this interesting because often a coastal state such as mine says, well, this must be doing us a lot of good because we have all these links overseas. But here's the thing. When you have all those links, it's much easier for a company to take its business overseas, so you have a disproportionate impact. And we see that with uh, Oregon on this list and, and on this, this, this map. I want to go to a second chart. 
which just shows the total U.S. jobs displaced by the growing trade deficit with China since 2001. Obviously, a steady upward climb. And now I'm going to go through a third chart. And on this third chart, you have um, the line, the line that is in blue has one slope up through 2001. and then an accelerated slope after 2001. Did our loss of jobs, manufacturing jobs, as a result of the trade deficit with China increase significantly after their admission to the WTO? Ms. Glass, is that something you'd like to comment on? Um, I think the chart speaks for itself, Senator, and I think it illustrates um, the point that I think you're trying to make that as part of the WTO accession of, chi of China to the WTO, um, we did not, I mean, those are standards that we need to not only relook at, but we need to ensure that if there is a renegotiation of China, accession to the WTO, that they're enforceable standards. You're seeing this play out in key areas across the country. It's not just the industrial Midwest. It is on, in coastal states. And um, I, think, I think these are very illustrative of the real deep problem that we're seeing across America. What we essentially see in this chart, in summary, is as, as product penetration went up and increased substantially after 2001, American jobs lost to that trade deficit uh, continued. <laughs> so, uh, and it makes, it makes fundamental sense. If we have a company here that is abiding by American rules, and that means in wages, in environmental standards, certainly in labor standards, and we're competing against a company playing by Chinese rules, which may mean no enforcement of even minimum environmental standards, and you noticed you, you noted some of the examples in the case of NAFTA and what's going on in, in Mexico. Uh, this is different than this is China, but uh, then the foreign company is going to be able to make things for less. Uh, and our American company has two choices. One, go out of business, or two, move their factory overseas. And so we would lose jobs. And this, I just want to keep accentuating this basic story because it's something that it seems straightforward, and yet people have a hard time getting their hands around it. If you let the competitor have full access to a market, but play by a different set of rules, you give a huge advantage to your competitor, and that means the loss of American jobs. So one of the things that I put forward, and Mr. Wessel, you, you mentioned it, was level the playing field in Global Trade Act, which is essentially that very low labor and environmental standards in foreign countries below the norm for their country would in fact be a form of social dumping and we could use American dumping laws. Does that strategy of building on an existing mechanism for a form of unfair subsidy that would address the, the race to the bottom uh, make sense? I think it not only makes sense, uh, it's vital that we include a provision like that in future trade agreements. When we look at trade agreements and uh, evaluate the opportunities that may exist by engaging those agreements with other countries, 
we have certain expectations about how they are going to develop their market, whether we're going to whether we're going to have consumers we can sell to, whether they have consumers who can buy their own products, whether our companies are going to outsource offshore, or whether we're going to have a fair and level playing field. We've found over time that the provisions on environment and labor have been difficult to enforce, if they're enforced at all. With Guatemala, it took eight years to get a trade case to the arbitral panel, and then it failed because of a uh, legal uh, argument about a certain standard. Uh, the result is that producers, workers, farmers, ranchers here in the US have suffered because of the social dumping that is inherent in those agreements. Thank you. And Ms. Glass, any comment on that? Absolutely. Um, I think your um, legislation is innovative in terms of its approach. Um, I think it's part of a more comprehensive strategy of addressing these predatory trade practices. It essentially penalizes uh, countries and industries that don't play by the rules. We have a huge overcapacity of steel issue in places like China, and there's been well-known documentaries done. It's one title that comes to mind called Under the Dome, which talks about the really um, significant public health impacts, the overcapacity of steel, and the fact that they have weak environmental laws. And this documentary played for a couple days in China and was quickly taken down because it started uh, some social unrest there. So what your bill is doing is essentially giving the United States companies a chance to compete. It's leveling the playing field, and um, we want to work with you on, on pushing forward this and your joint effort um, across the committee. Thank you. We'll now turn to the chairman of uh, this committee subcommittee on East Asia and the Pacific, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Chairman Young. Uh, thank you for holding this hearing today. Thank you to all of you for being here and a part of this. Uh, this is a very important issue, and I'm grateful that this uh, hearing has been held to discuss uh, the matters today. Uh, Dr. Atkinson, it's great to see you in front of the Foreign Relations Committee. Normally work with you at the Commerce Committee. So uh, Dr. Atkinson was a, a key part of the reauthorization of the America Competes legislation, uh, the American Innovation and Competitiveness Act, which went into effect last Congress. So thank you for your great work on STEM education, engineering, science, and the research uh, that we're able to further because of your outstanding work. Thanks, uh, and to all of you, thank you. Uh, He's a whole of Congress witness. A whole of Congress witness, that's yes. right, that's yeah. right. Uh, thank you, thank you for your constant advocacy. Um, uh, Chairman Young, also thank you for being a, a part of a bill that we just introduced a couple of weeks ago, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. Mr. Goodman, thank you for highlighting that in your testimony today. Um, uh, Chairman is a co-sponsor of the legislation, um, Senate Bill 2736, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. It, this hearing comes at a critical time. It's pretty remarkable to think that by 2030, 66% of the global middle class population will be in Asia. 59% uh, of middle class consumption will be in Asia. We know that the largest standing armies in the world are going to be in our and going to be uh, in Asia. We know that five of our seven uh, defense obligations are in Asia. We can't afford to fall behind. Uh, as a result. According to the Asian Development Bank, 16 Asian countries have signed 140 bilateral or regional trade agreements, and 75 more trade agreements with Asian countries are under negotiation or concluded and awaiting entry uh, into force. In the meantime, the U.S. has only signed free trade agreements with three nations in the Indo-Pacific region, namely Australia, Singapore, uh, Republic of Korea. That's why ARIA, 
legislation that we talked about uh, calls on the administration to engage in one multilateral, bilateral, or regional trade agreements that increase uh, U.S. employment and expand the economy. Two, formal economic dialogues that include concrete outcomes. Three, high standard bilateral investment treaties between the United States and nations in the Indo-Pacific region. Four, negotiations of the trade and services agreements uh, and the environmental goods agreement that include several major Asian economies. Five, the proactive strategic and continuing high-level use of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, APEC, at the East Asia Summit, and the Group of 20 to pursue U.S. economic objectives in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, ARIA also provides an authorization for a more robust U.S. commercial presence throughout the Indo-Pacific region to promote U.S. exports and additional trade facilitation efforts, authorizes the imposition of penalties on entities and governments engaged in the theft of U.S. intellectual property, and requires a new comprehensive U.S. policy to promote energy exports to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I think uh, in addition to Chairman Young, uh, we're joined in the legislation by Senators Markey, Senator Cardin, Senator Rubio, uh, so it's a bipartisan effort to really create a generational strategy uh, as we look at Asia. And I know uh, the uh, chairman's working on a national economic security strategy as well, and I appreciate your work on that, so thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll be holding hearings as well in the committee to talk about uh, the bill, but also uh, further this discussion because uh, it is that important. So uh, I guess the question I would ask uh, to, to all of you, uh, our initiatives, it, and I think it's important too, let me frame this, in, in recent discussions with some leaders in Southeast Asia, one of, the, one of the highlights of a conversation was simply this. They worry that there are no more Ted Stevens, Danny Inouye's, or Bob Dole's in the U.S. Senate as it relates to Asia. And so the question is, what is this generation of senators going to do, uh, leaders in Congress, to be that face uh, in Asia of the U.S., to make sure that we have that presence that is so desperately sought in Asia, especially those who wish to counter uh, the rising power of China. And I think ARIA can help do just that. So um, do you agree that, uh, or, or believe that initiatives like ARIA would help the U.S. to build a more robust, long-lasting economic commercial presence in the Indo-Pacific region? Uh, Mr. Goodman? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Senator. I mean, I think this is a terrific effort, and I um, don't worry about the, the, the makeup of the, the Senate um, senators uh, interested in Asia because you and and some of the other senators you mentioned uh, have, and others, Dan Sullivan and others, have been real leaders in this area. And I, I feel very optimistic that there's a great new uh, group of people who understand the importance, as you said, of Asia. It's about 50% of the world population, the world economy, um, and um, world GDP. And we have to be successful there. And being successful there means doing a lot of the things that you outlined there in the ARIA bill. And, um, and the region wants it. And I think this is where I'm, I'm sort of more optimistic, I think, about our opportunities here, because I think that there is a strong demand pull still for United States influence in that region. I was in Myanmar, of all places, a few weeks ago, where you think that they don't really uh, we don't have much traction there, and we've got some very specific, difficult issues there. But every meeting I was in, they said they want two, three things. They want uh, electric power, they want human capacity, and they want uh, an alternative to China. 
frankly. Yeah. Um, and so I think we can provide all those things. I think we're in a great position, and I think the kind of legislation that, that you're talking about and uh, the, the uh, 2757, the, the uh, National Security Economic Act, together, those things will, I think, put us in a very good position in the region. Yeah. And thank you. And just to point out, too, that this committee has passed legislation, at least an amendment to a, to a bill that has passed out of the committee on the electrification needs of Myanmar. So uh, building on the successes we've had with Power Africa, uh, looking at that as an example of what we possibly can do in Myanmar. So uh, glad that that committee has embraced a, sort of a Power Myanmar concept because I know it is critical to show that this new civilian government has made progress in Myanmar. And Mr. Russell, uh, Ms. Glass, Dr. Atkinson, uh, quickly, we're about a, a minute left. A quick comment, and number one, um, uh, thank you. Um, I, I have to admit I am not familiar with the legislation. I will. It's just the best bill ever. I, 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 I will read it this evening and look forward to it. But. Um, I don't think there's any question that we need to be engaging in Asia and all around the world. Um, I was in Vietnam as a government official uh, for the commission two years ago. The embrace that we get from the Vietnamese government, the people in terms of American values, American vision, uh, and American leadership uh, is something that you know is um, exhilarating. Uh, and we have relations like that and opportunities around, uh, around the region. The real question, though, is what are the terms of trade uh, as it relates to any kind of increased engagement? I think the Trump administration is looking at all of the agreements that are on the books, uh, determining whether there can be changes that are acceptable and, and passable, uh, and also acceptable, of course, to our trading partners. Uh, so I think the engagement is vital. We have to look at what the terms of trade are. With the indulgence of the chairman, can I get the last two quickly? Uh, Dr. Ms. Glass. I, I will save you some time. I agree with Mr. Wessel's assessment. Apologies, I have not read the bill, but I look forward to doing that. And Thank you. Thank you. So, Senator Gardner, I haven't read the bill either, but from your description, I think it's vital that we counter the Chinese efforts there. They're trying to develop their own regional trade agreement on terms that many countries there who I've spoken with officials don't like those, agree those terms and they're basically presented with something they have no choice over. They would much rather have a global trading agreement where we're at the hub of that. Uh, I think that's and central and critical for us to be able to move forward and do that. Great, thank you all. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, uh, Senator Gardner. Uh, one of the key concerns I hear from my constituents uh, is about the theft of our intellectual property. Uh, it, it, uh, it inhibits our ability to grow not just jobs, but incomes. It undermines our national security. Uh, Dr. Atkinson, you provided uh, some specific examples. One that I found compelling was this notion of a USTR mercantilist index that might in turn be used to, um, uh, to uh, apply pressure to different countries if they happen to fall low on, on, on that index. Um, I, I would ask you if, if there are additional measures you believe, specific steps that we might take uh, to better protect American IP. And uh, Mr. Wessel, Mr. Goodman, if, if you have additional thoughts on this, I'd appreciate it. So I, I think one, one step, again, if you look at the USTR 301 report, it lists the scoff laws, the, the worst ones every year. <clears throat> And there really are no consequences for being on that list other than naming and shaming. For a lot of these countries, naming and shaming isn't really a high, high level of motivation for them to not do that. So we could do things like make sure that we simply don't give them economic aid, uh, that we don't allow them to have uh, tariff-free access to our markets. But I think more importantly, the biggest, the big kahuna here, if you will, really is China. 
And, and, and I think we made a big mistake with how we deal with China in the sense that they're not rules-based. We're trying to deal with them from a rules-based regime. We have to fundamentally switch to a results-oriented trading system with China, and we have to hold them, I would say, to two or three big results that we expect in the next six to 12 months. One, massive reduction in their subsidies to their advanced industries. For example, $160 billion they're giving to their semiconductor industry alone. Number two, real and demonstrable measures on no more forced technology transfer and significantly reduced cyber theft of our of our intellectual property. The FBI and other government agencies, they know how much cyber theft is going on. We can hold them accountable for those things. I think fundamentally that's what our trading pressure has got to do with China, otherwise they're just going to keep doing it. If I could just quickly add, yes. I think there are a number of other things that I agree with all that Rob just said. Um, Several years ago, 2014, as you may know, five PLA hackers went after five U.S. companies and the steelworkers. Uh, the indictment was sealed. Because of that seal, the uh, government was unable to give to the USTR the underlying information to potentially bring a trade case. That was That's ultimately been resolved. But we have a number of impediments internally in terms of how we coordinate activities. Economic espionage doesn't qualify as espionage under the Espionage Act. It's national security. It's a very old statute. It's important, et cetera. So I think there are a number of tools and cooperation that can uh, uh, be uh, uh, developed that would help us do a better job of doing what we should be for U.S. companies and workers. Thank you. I'll look into that. Uh, Ms. Glass, Mr. Goodman. Um, I agree that we need results, and I think in the areas that um, um, Rob mentioned, um, subsidies, um, cyber theft, that we should be much uh, tougher uh, with China. But I also believe in the rules. I still think we need rules on things that will help constrain them. Uh, we can, you know, as I said, in TPP, there were strong digital-related rules there. There were strong intellectual property uh, protections. And I think if we had done that and had used our allies and partners who were aligned with us on those things, um, I think we could hold China's feet to the fire. Did you have something, Ms. Just, just one, one thing to add, yes. since I raised it in uh, the last comment around the overcapacity in certain energy-intensive trade-exposed industries, including steel and aluminum. Um, China has made various commitments to curtail that overcapacity, um, has said that they will be transparent in that process. Uh, of bringing the overcapacity in line, and that, in fact, um, reports coming out of China says that a lot of what they're sharing in terms of government documents is inaccurate. Um, and so, uh, you know, what are the repercussions for not living up to agreements um, that we have made with the Chinese? And so that's why a lot of our comments today, both of, um, from almost all of us, about enforcement is, is a key uh, priority for all of us. I'd like to turn to the principle of reciprocity within the context of economic statecraft. What is it? Do we have it with China? If we don't have it, how do we get it? Uh, and then if you have additional views on this notion of reciprocity, uh, I'd, I'd welcome uh, your sharing them with us. Uh, why don't we just go down the line? Dr. Atkinson, please. Well, reciprocity is the notion that they treat us the way we treat them and vice versa. We definitely don't have that in a wide variety of areas. Uh, we 
again, because we're a rule of law country, uh, we treat the Chinese differently and, and, and their investments and others differently. I think, for example, with regard to CFIUS, um, we just need a regime that treats Chinese investment differently than we would say treat Canadian investment or German investment. Uh, the Chinese, as, as Mike Wessel has said, they don't allow us to invest in most of their industries without a JV. Uh, why would we allow them to invest in our industries if they don't give us that same reciprocity? Which is why I also agree with uh, Mike Wessel on the whole notion of a bit. Uh, I think us adopting a, a bilateral investment treaty with China would be a mistake because it would mandate us to rules that we would have to live by, and they have shown that they're not going to live by the rules. Anything else, uh, Ms. Glass, Mr. Wessel, Mr. Goodman, about reciprocity that you'd like to add? Okay. Uh, if, if, if no, then uh, I'd like to briefly turn to this national economic security strategy legislation that uh, Senator Merkley has, has joined with me along with Senators Rubio and Coons in introducing last month. Um, bipartisan in nature, uh, Dr. Atkinson, your prepared testimony, uh, you indicated that we should pass it. Why do you believe Congress should pass this legislation? I think there are two main reasons to pass this legislation. One is we simply don't have the kind of analytical capabilities and focus in the White House. And it, I'm not saying it's this administration, it's all administrations, frankly, have not focused on this. Making that a mandate that they have to come up with a plan for Congress on the linkage between economic security and national security will just make them think harder about this and do the kind of legwork they need. And that will lead to the kind of institutional cooperation we need with different agencies to move forward. But I think perhaps even more importantly, we need a much stronger national consensus uh, politically around our ability and our need and a requirement to take stronger actions in these areas. That's been harder to do. When we link it to national security, it becomes a lot easier to do because everybody can get behind national security, and rightly so. So I think tying economic security and national security together just makes it easier for us to take the kinds of steps that we're going to need to take to be competitive and secure. Does anyone else have anything to add on the importance of this legislation? I think it's a vital piece of legislation, and I believe I referred in my uh, testimony to um, a uh, pales by comparison, but a similar challenge that occurred in the 1980s when we were looking at Japan's competitive threat, what they were doing in semiconductors and a number of other sectors. Uh, the president convened the Young Commission, uh, which in many ways would do what you've suggested, and it's a good title for uh, a new young commission, uh, that really um, uh, raised the debate nationally. It looked at everything from what we we're going to do in these leading edge industries to what we we're going to do about STEM education, what we we're going to do about investments, et cetera. And it helped give people an understanding that their government was on their side and that there was an action plan and people were being led down that process. It was an important action then. I think it'd be very important now. Can I just add one point, which is that uh, th this act was really, in a way, music to my ears, because I've worked in a foreign policy context at, the, at a think tank focused on foreign policy, national security, in which economics is kind of the afterthought or the tail on the dog. And so my whole life is about trying to make the point that economics is a key part of national security and power. And so I think it's totally in line with, with um, what I believe we need to do. We need to integrate this. And I think structurally in the government, we need to do a better job of integrating economics. Um, so for example, uh, the NSC and NEC, I think they need to work even more closely and seamlessly together. 
uh, in the White House. I think the State Department needs to have stronger economic diplomacy capabilities. The, the fact that, you know, that there have been talk about diminishing that role or not funding it, I think, is a big mistake. I think at the Treasury Department where I worked, I, I was on the international side, 200 people, and there were thousands of people doing domestic economics. I think we needed to have a better integration of, of those uh, structures. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do to, to structurally improve the way we handle economics and national security. Well, I couldn't agree more based on my consultation with you and others, and, and uh, thank you for your encouragement, uh, Mr. Merkley. Uh, thank you, and, and Mr. Goodman, you mentioned you had been in Myanmar, uh, also known as, as Burma, and Myanmar has just engaged in a massive process of ethnic cleansing. Was that a topic that you discussed with the, the officials while you were in that country? The purpose of my trip was to look at economic issues, and I didn't focus specifically on that, but of course it was a, a major um, issue of, of concern when we met with the U.S. Embassy. It's a major focus of what they're uh, paying attention to. Um, there were issues, we were looking at some of the, the activities of China in the north of Myanmar economically, and they have a special economic zone and a port uh, up near the um, Rakhine area. And uh, so we were talking about their involvement in economically in the context of that uh, problem. I'm not an expert on that issue per se, so it's not something that we were um, particularly investigating on this trip. But it's a, it's a, um, a terrible problem and one that the U.S. Uh, needs to be deeply engaged in. It is horrific. And our Foreign Relations Committee has passed out sanctions against their military. Uh, and, but they, their military has engaged in the denigration of the Rohingya people since they took over the military coup decades ago uh, to the point that the rest of the country views that ethnic minority as almost subhuman. And now there's, uh, the, the ethnic cleansing is tremendously popular. And if countries like the U.S. don't push back and stand up for, uh, against the massacre of, of uh, ethnic minorities, um, and lead the world, uh, who will? There is a group that says, well, we should pursue the economic opportunities there and kind of look the other way, but I, I certainly hope that that's not the way our country proceeds. Uh, Ms. Glass, I wanted to turn uh, to your comment about the bike clean in California. And um, uh, can you describe just very briefly, very quickly, uh, how California gives preference for clean products? So California passed the first of its kind legislation this last legislative session, and it was signed into law by Governor Brown at the end of last year. And essentially, it provides benchmarking. Um, under California law, there's not a Buy America requirement for procurement of products. And there was, a, there was actually a lot of newspaper articles around pollution and the overcapacity of the steel industry in China and how that was impacting air pollution on the West Coast in the United States. And because that was started getting media attention and people started looking at, well, where are we procuring our steel from? Um, where are we getting some of our insulation products, some of these heavier industries? What could we do, be doing here in the state of California to really reward the good players? not just U.S. companies, but the be better than average in terms of environmental standards. And so there's a lot of um, benchmarking that exists out there for some of these heavy industries. It's an innovative piece of legislation. The state of Washington um, is moving forward with um, a sort of a demonstration bill. Um, and so I would love to work with you on uh, Thank you. And I wanted to note that you, you started by describing how that was inspired in part by the Chinese steel being used in the San Francisco Bay Bridge. 
that particular incidence was done through something called the segmentation loophole, where the contractor split the cost of that bridge into small sections in order to bypass Buy America at the national level. That is an issue that I put on the floor of the Senate uh, as, an, as an amendment, and we did get bipartisan uh, support to close that loophole. So they could not today right. uh, build that bridge in that, in that, in that fashion, thank, thankfully. But I hadn't ever thought about the pollution uh, effects of that, so thank you for, for bringing those up. Uh, I wanted to uh, uh, turn to a piece of the strategic puzzle, which is when China runs up a massive trade surplus, what do they do with the funds that they have piling up in China? And one of the things they do is they buy American companies. Another thing they're doing is uh, doing uh, prestige projects around the world, like, like stadiums and highways, infrastructure, to, to gain goodwill. And a third thing they're doing is buying up mineral assets around the world that will be very important in the future economy. As we look at that part of the strategy, which often gets forgotten, uh, does it add anything to understanding how important it is to take on this imbalance? Dr. Atkinson, and by the way, Dr. Atkinson, very involved in, in Oregon, and so I wanted to uh, mention how delighted we are that you are bringing your expertise uh, uh, to our state or, or contributing to the world from our state. Thank you. I am a proud duck. Yes. Uh, I think, when you, I think people make a mistake when they say, well, China used to buy our T-bills, and now they're investing in our company, so isn't that good? There's no difference. In fact, it's worse. The latter is worse. They're recycling their money in order to keep their currency lower, but they're also buying up our companies. Uh, they're using that, that, that surplus cash to come and buy up our companies as a direct way or invest in our companies. I think I mentioned the DUIX uh, report in my testimony where they've estimated, I believe it's 10 to 20 percent of all venture funding now in Silicon Valley is Chinese-backed. So they're recycling the money basically to buy our technology. In many, many cases, that's what they're doing and then taking that technology back to compete with us. So we should rec recognize that as a, a competitive challenge. Uh, yes, Mr. Yes. Yeah, no, we certainly should do that, and I think uh, Rob has talked about uh, the need for CFIUS reform, and I think there are a number of things that would get at the venture capital funds and accretive transactions, et cetera, that are now um, uh, sort of um, uh, going under the radar. Uh, in addition to that, and I believe Rob talked about it in his testimony, in the area of 5G, which is the new telecom standard, the South China Morning Post said China is spending $411 billion. So building up these massive reserves is also giving the, them the capital they need to be able to invest in these technologies, to buy companies, to uh, ensure that they have the wherewithal to succeed uh, and make mistakes, because in you know all of these developments, you're going to make mistakes. In a market-based economy, as you know, you make a mistake, it's hard sometimes to get the next round of funding. Uh, China doesn't have that problem. Yes, Dr. Mr. Goodwin. Can I just add one other dimension, which you alluded to, which is China's uh, Belt and Road-related initiatives of building infrastructure around the Asia-Pacific and the world. I mean, this is a major, in fact, I'd say it's the central um, legacy item for Xi Jinping in terms of external 
um, power projection. Um, he he is got this ambitious plan that maybe a trillion plus dollars of of spending. Ultimately, a lot of that money is going to be wasted. By the way, I talk about you know money that is spent poorly, but it's some of it is going to stick. And I think we need to be in this game. I know it's a far away story, and it's sort of infrastructure is four syllables, which puts people to sleep. But it's actually a really important uh, competition out in that region. And I think the, the as I mentioned in Myanmar, other places, you know, and one of the first things you hear is people want infrastructure, and they know that the United States is not going to bring a trillion dollars of government money. But we might liberate, uh, if we do the right things, a lot of you know, pension monies, and we've got trillions of dollars uh, of money that would come into infrastructure as a long-term investment class, um, if life insurance money, others, if they thought they could get a return on this investment. That gets to uh, the conditions under which this investment is made. And we bring a lot of the best practices that would help uh, make for better infrastructure investment in the region, not create social and environmental damage in these countries, not create huge debt problems for the borrowing countries, which is a huge issue that the IMF and, and others have, have uh, expressed warnings uh, to. So I, I think that it's really important for us. And in that context, I mentioned breathlessly, because I was running out of time in my opening statement, that the BUILD Act, which is some other um, uh, uh, senators are sponsoring to uh, move forward with a, 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 a new uh, supercharged OPIC uh, with some additional funding capability, ability to invest in um, equity positions is very important. It's a small, it's much smaller than the China Development Bank's uh, firepower, but it's an important piece of what we bring to the table. Great companies, great products and services, rule of law, and uh, an ability to, li to, to liberate, uh, sort of re release this trillions of dollars of private money. If I could just add quickly, uh, with regard to uh, OBOR, the uh, One Belt, One Road, but also, as you noted, uh, investments in other nations, China often brings its own people over there, they often, their own workers, they often supply the materials, so the benefits for those economies are limited. They often build a rail line simply from the mine to the port so that they can get the materials for their own use rather than really investing in the in the country the kind of things that we do to ensure you know broadly shared prosperity yeah significant uh, difference there and uh, i did have to smile for a moment mr goodwin you're talking about the build act uh because um we now have three build acts. We have my, my former legislation from last cycle, which was about restoring shop classes uh, across America as part of a CTE effort. Uh, and then we have the build act you referred to. And now we have the build act, which is the uh, new name for the Tiger Grants. Uh, so we're all, gonna, we're all gonna be very confused in the conversation uh, uh, going ahead. Uh, thank you. At least the Build Act has one syllable, right? Uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> so doc, Dr. Atkinson, um, uh, this uh, proposal that uh, you have uh, advocated for, Congress mandating USR producing a global mercantilist index, index uh, this report would comprehensively identify all the innovation mercantilist policies of America's trading partners and rank the worst offenders. My question for you is this. Should a low ranking trigger uh, more scrutinizing treatment under CFIUS? I think, uh, I, I certainly would think it should trigger a more scrutinization of many, many things that we do as a government uh, to help other countries. I think with regard to CFIUS, uh, 
yes, but it doesn't necessarily mean it should trigger it. It means it should have a review. So some countries are mercantilists, but they don't really have a strategy to buy up our companies. Uh, and sometimes when the, when the acquisitions are made, they really are business to business. They're capitalists in their country with our capitalists. I think what is different about China is even the private sector investments are really government-led, government-backed. And I, that, to me, is the fundamental difference. But I, I agree it should, it should trigger some, certainly some deeper look. Okay, thank you. I, I'm going to turn to using the topic of using existing tools more effectively. Mr. Wessel, you write in your prepared statement, you believe we already have many tools we need to address China's predatory uh, economic practices, but we just haven't been willing uh, to use them, ha haven't found uh, the wherewithal, or we haven't been creative in bringing them to bear. Can you briefly elaborate on that point and highlight maybe one or two of the most effective tools that are available to us that we're not optimally employing right now? Um, a quick piece of history, very quick, which is, you know, right after China joined the WTO, there was a honeymoon period. People wanted them to abide by the rules, et cetera, and give them time. That honeymoon period was far too long. We gave them uh, too much leeway. Um, Congress has the ability, and I would think it was mentioned earlier, reclaiming jurisdiction over uh, Congress's uh, Title uh, Title One, Section One, uh, Chapter Eight, uh, authority over international trade uh, to self-initiate cases or to demand that cases be filed. So when one looks at uh, what this administration has now done on intellectual property with the 301. That case could have been filed seven, eight years ago. All of the things that we are experiencing now could have been done then. Congress had the authority and I believe should have stepped in. That's true in green technology, in auto parts, and any of a number of things. That's number one. Number two, finding out about subsidies is very hard. But US companies, those that are publicly traded, uh, are under the jurisdiction of the SEC, and that information is material uh, and should be uh, the SEC, without releasing the data to the public, can help gain information from what's happening with these companies, both in terms of the subsidies they're getting, as well as the uh, IP that they are having, being forced to transfer, and action can take place on that. Uh, there are a number of other self-initiation authorities, Section 201, Section 337, and others, all of which together would send a message to the public that our law is going to be properly enforced. You mentioned the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. Right. Uh, or peekaboo. <laughs> what, what, my term. What's, yeah. What specific action uh, do you believe Congress should take with respect to uh, reciprocity and uh, this board? Yeah. Uh, the fact is that China has refused to uh, sign a memorandum of understanding that would allow our auditors to get access to the work papers. That's something vital under the SEC. I think it's the 34 Act so that investors will have adequate information. If China does not allow that, we should not be allowing them to list on U.S. exchanges. Very good. Uh, do our... Other witnesses have anything to add on the topic of using existing tools more effectively? I would add one to what Mike said, and that is uh, under the WTO rules, the Chinese are supposed to report all subsidies and trade distorting measures to the WTO, and they haven't really done it. 
uh, and therefore we're somewhat in the dark on that. We need to insist on that. And if they don't do it, we need to bring a WTO case against them for doing that. Now, assuming that they do it, that will then open up a whole other set of avenues to bring cases against them for illegal WTO illegal subsidies. So that could be something we could do quite quickly. I 100% agree with Mike. One of the reasons on self-initiation, one of the reasons we haven't brought more cases is, w, is, w, is the USTR looks to industry to bring cases. Industry will oftentimes not want to bring cases because they know they will be singled out for punishment by the Chinese government. So we need to start self-initiating cases on behalf of both U.S. industry and the U.S. economy. Thank you. Mr. Goodman, uh, in your written testimony, you say that Washington needs to leverage the private sector better. Now, moments ago, you, you referenced um, the opportunities um, that uh, we might have to, to open up uh, investment from public pension funds, from insurance, <laughs> and others in infrastructure overseas. Uh, as certain public pensions are seeking higher ROIs, that might make some sense uh, to allow them to do so domestically as well as internationally. We're already looking into that as an office. Um, are there other ways in which you believe the federal government can better work uh, to bring to bear the private sector uh, to respond to international predatory economic policies? Yes, uh, Senator. I think it's critically important to have the private sector engaged in this. Um, they, uh, as you said, they they have access to huge amounts of capital, but also to you know great goods and services. And and the 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 I mentioned in Myanmar this human capacity point. The, a lot of these great companies like GE and others bring uh, Myanmarese engineers to the U.S. and train them. I think we need the private sector in a lot of ways involved in this story. Um, and I, I think that we could engage them more through uh, mechanisms uh, that are similar or equivalent to what we have in APEC, where the, uh, in the as somebody alluded to, I think you did, or, or Senator Gardner, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, where they're integrated into the policy-making formulation process. I think if we did that in other contexts, that would be uh, that would be quite helpful. I agree we need them. I mean, I agree with Rob's point that, that they're afraid of filing cases and they're afraid of really sticking their necks out because they have a lot at stake in China, for example. Uh, I think we should find ways to encourage them to, if not file cases, at least provide more evidence, more, uh, more willingness to step forward and say what the real problems are because it's, uh, uh, there are serious problems for our investors over there and I think uh, uh, they could be very helpful in, in um, uh, shining light on those practices. So, yeah, there, there might be instances in, in, in which we could anonymize the information and, and encourage private companies to report to our government so that we might in turn, uh, where appropriate and where possible, be able to respond diplomatically uh, or in, in other policy realms. Does, does that make sense? I, okay. As I understand it, and I, I, I will supply you some more information yeah. uh, afterwards, but I believe it was the cotton case against Brazil where the administration, through a WTO case, was able to aggregate the market effect rather than have to show a specific injury for a country, a right. company. And there are ways of doing that across the board in steel and paper and any of a number of areas where you could show that there's been hacking, for example, and that there has been a market effect in terms of penetration by the Chinese or other players, et cetera. So I think a lot of work uh, could be done here. Uh, that would um, uh, protect companies, which is, you know, we're not looking for them to uh, uh, be bloodied in the fight, but as well as uh, advance U.S. interests. With respect to the WTO, are there, are there other things we might be doing uh, to 
improve the dispute settlement procedure. You know, it, it's often uh, two years, five years, sometimes longer, as I understand it, before final relief is available. Um, justice delayed is justice denied in the economic uh, realm. Uh, how about uh, ways to more expeditiously uh, adjudicate uh, these situations and, and provide relief? Uh, any recommendations that we might advocate for? There's no question that the WTO dispute settlement mechanism is is uh, unwieldy and needs reform. And I think this is a bipartisan issue. The the Obama administration, I think, was trying to work on that, and and obviously the Trump administration is very uh, concerned about that. You know, at the same time, uh, we win most of the cases we file, and so you know we want to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think it's important to try to use those mechanisms. The fact that we have filed a case on forced technology transfer, I think, is a good thing, and. Um, uh, I know there's been a, I have not myself studied the, uh, the dispute settlement um, uh, system to be able to give you d detailed recommendations, but there are people who have done that. Maybe the gentlemen here have done more work on that, but I think there's definitely a need to improve it, make it faster and uh, more, um, uh, uh, you know, more likely to produce the kind of results that are going to uh, challenge practices like China's. Senator Merkley. Thank you. So China charges us 15.5% tariff on our ag products, and we charge 5.2% on theirs. Why shouldn't we charge them the same tariff that they charge on us? Anyone just who would like to jump in? We wrote a report when the administration came out with it, before it came out with its tariff proposal, and one of the arguments we made, if you look at what the Chinese have threatened their retaliatory tariffs to the president's tariff, they were largely all on consumer final goods, wine and things like that. What the administration had many more of its tariffs on producer goods, and in particular capital goods, and, and including things like computers. So my nuanced answer, Senator, is yes, we should have reciprocity in general. But there are certain things, like for example, when a U.S. company buys a machine tool to improve their, improve their productivity or buys a, a server to improve their productivity, putting tariffs on, Chinese pro on those Chinese products basically raises the cost of capital goods for our companies and makes them less competitive. So I would fully agree on many, many products, particularly consumer products like food and others, uh, it makes perfect sense. And autos would be another example. Now the auto tariff uh, differential is 25% versus two and a half percent. But wouldn't it kind of catch their attention if, if we said we're going to invoke reciprocity? They have a, it's a, you shouldn't use the example, it's a little bit like hitting a mule over a head to, to get them to come to water. You have to use a lot of sticks there, there and, and this would be one stick to get their attention, absolutely. Yeah, I, think it, I think it would get their attention. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that that is directly the right thing to do, but the fact that, that we have set up a system where we continue to give them far lower tariffs in our market than vice versa says something is, is, is wrong. I think at one point we viewed their economy as so far behind ours uh, that, that this made some sense. Uh, but I must say I've had different trips to China. I went there uh, and saw uh, back in the 1990s, a lot of bicycles. I, I went back and saw a lot of cars. I went back again and saw a huge amount of infrastructure, bullet trains, metro systems, and 
came back and said, you know, in many ways, on my most recent trip, their cities look more developed than ours. I mean, you can't, in that bullet train trip I took was the very first one from uh, Beijing to Tianjin. And now they have a whole network of them around the country. I mean, massive changes there. So that, that buildup of resources from the, the trade surplus with the United States is not only helping in all those other things I mentioned, but also investment in their own internal uh, infrastructure. And it, it just, it seems to me like we may have come to a point uh, where the impact on our jobs in this country, not just the factories, but the supply chains of the factories, and not just the supply chains, but the loss of those paychecks in our retail stores. So it hits us three different, three different ways. Maybe we should start rethinking it. In that regard, I wanted to turn, uh, Mr. Wessel, you made a reference to the Made in China 2025 strategy, which is uh, a, a specific intense planning by the Chinese government, self-sufficient in 10 key sectors. So they have that plan, and then they have this other plan, massively subsidizing their manufacturing, undercut the market in the United States, run a trade surplus, take those funds, buy strategic minerals, do prestige projects around the world, buy shares in American companies or buy control of American companies. They have, a, they have a plan, and they are moving forward with a massive momentum. Where's our plan? And after Mr. Russell completes, I think it's an important enough question to have any of you weigh in with the appropriate. I guess my Where's our plan? Is, my response is that plan will probably come after the bill that you two have co-authored uh, passes and is implemented by the administration. Um, I think we are just waking up to the challenges and threats uh, of China's activities, not only China 2025, 13th five-year plan, what's known as the uh, Thousand Talents Program, the 111 Program, a whole slate of programs that, quite frankly, I don't think we really had our hands around or, uh, or uh, understood the impact. Uh, China now has the two fastest high-performing computers in the world. You know, we'll probably catch up and it will be traded back and forth. 5G, uh, Huawei, I believe, has 10% of the uh, patents. We are seeing the Chinese succeed because of the massive amounts uh, of capital that are being invested. The, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, our companies who are assisting willingly and unwillingly at times course uh, technology transfers uh, and outright theft of intellectual property. We need a plan. Your bill would help do that. I think this administration is looking carefully at it. Their national security strategy did have more of an economic component than I think past strategies did, but um, we're essentially asleep at the switch still. Where's our plan, Ms. Glass? Um, well, I will reiterate everything that Mike Wessel said, but I would say to you that that's the right question to be asking. Um, I can speak from some of my own personal experience, um, having worked at the Commerce Department on trade issues and traveled extensively to Southeast Asia, um, and reflecting on some of the conversations I had with chief economic officers in the region, um, not just China, but in Vietnam and other locations, 
all of these countries are strategizing around their economic de development plan, not just China. China has seen exponential growth that you've seen with your own eyes and your trips over the past few years and past few decades. It's time to change the conversation with China. We should be demanding more. We should be asking for more. And it will take leadership from both of you and others in the Congress to really put, and the administration, to put feet to the fire on this issue. Um, we should be an asking for reciprocal market access for our goods that we are making here. We should be constantly evaluating new goods that are emerging in our, in our various uh, tariff categories that are growth opportunities for U.S. producers to export product abroad. These are conversations that can, need to continue to evolve and not just um, uh, be reflective of when uh, China joined the WTO. And so that's the right question to be asking. It's time to get a little tough, much more tough on China than we have been. Um, and with your, both of your leadership, we look forward to engaging in that effort. I think the fact that you had to draft that legislation, the Ness um, legislation, shows that we don't have a plan and we need one. And so I think it's it's a, a great start. I, I do think that we have to also, and this is kind of, uh, in a way, heretical because you know the term industrial policy in the United States is a dirty word, and I think sort of rightly so. We don't we don't do that. We don't do that um, uh, as in a sort of an organized way, and shouldn't. But the fact is, we have invested strategically in the past in things like. Uh, the internet, uh, uh, in um, biotechnology through NIH and so forth. And we, I think, need to be more focused on what those targeted strategic, uh, back in the 1980s when Japan, I'm originally a Japan guy, and back in the 80s when we were threatened by the Japanese in the semiconductor space, we got together with a bunch of about 15 or 16 um, uh, companies and f set up Semitech, and that actually worked. Um, so I think there is, if it's done in a smart way, I think a targeted plan of, of trying to invest in strategic technologies is right. I don't think we should do across the board industrial policy, but targeted investments like that make sense. Can I just circle back on your earlier question, uh, Mr. Uh, Senator Mark Markley, about the China as a developing country, they shouldn't be allowed to get away with that anymore. Yes, they still have five, six hundred million people who are in you know, abject poverty. They need to bring out of poverty. So to be fair to them, they have a huge challenge there uh, domestically still. But as you mentioned from your example of seeing the advanced technology and the infrastructure and so forth in China, uh, this is an advanced country in, in the, the, the ways that matter in this conversation. And I think we should be holding China to a higher standard in terms of being a, an advanced country. And so they shouldn't have 25% tariffs on, on automobiles uh, at this stage. I, I personally am a little uncomfortable saying we ought to try to be as, you know, as uh, market restrictive as they are. Uh, in other words, the goal of reciprocity should be to get them down to our level or up to our level of openness. I mean, they should be lowering those things, not uh, trying, you know, as a means to an end, we may need to threaten to do things that, uh, that get their attention, as you said, but, uh, but the goal should be to bring down their uh, tariffs and other barriers to advanced country levels. That, I, absolutely, absolutely. But they're very happy with the situation as it is, with low tariffs to our market and high tariffs to theirs. And so at some point we have to be determined to have the leverage to change that, and that's the challenge. My time is up, and thank you very much. Dr. Atkinson, I'd like to turn to uh, our industrial base, our defense industrial base. How have China's uh, predatory economic policies undermined our 
uh, industrial base uh, and thus our ability to provide the most sophisticated, most capable weapons uh, to our warriors. Well, thank you. I think, you know, this is, I think, one of the most important components of your legislation is that the, there is, an, I think, a, a, a fairly widely held view in the government that there's a thing called defense industries and non-defense industries. And if you're a defense industry, think of, you know, Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, as long as they're doing okay, everything's fine. And I think that misses, uh, and part of it, it, it misses the fact that there are many, many industries that aren't in that space but are suppliers up or have capabilities that are related to that. So, for example, capabilities in the U.S. economy related to advanced fiber and materi uh, materials that can go into jet engines and wings and the like, you know, those aren't all going to be developed by defense contractors. They're going to be developed by commercial companies in the U.S. that our defense contractors can use. Same thing with semiconductors. You know, if we lose semiconductors, we might still be able to have the government, the Defense Department say, we will mandate or we will subsidize a few fabs for defense-specific chips. But if we do that, the cost of those chips goes massively through the roof and the technical capabilities of innovating in that space goes way, way down. So to answer your question, we have lost, I think, in a number of different areas. The, some of the folks who've done good work on that are Willie Shi and, and, and uh, at Harvard Business School. Uh, for example, things like uh, thin films, uh, flexible displays. Uh, flexible displays is a really important technology for the Defense Department going forward. We simply don't have the capabilities that we should have in that technology. We could have had them. Uh, another is optoelectronics, uh, on-chip uh, computing. Uh, we've fallen behind. We, we certainly haven't done well there as much as we should. So I think there's a number of different areas where the Chinese have shown uh, that they're advancing quite rapidly and we haven't been able to catch up as much as we should. Mr. Chairman, just one quick comment on this as well. We also have to understand that our military capabilities are second to none. You know that. But China is looking at asymmetric warfare. So our capabilities in terms of five jets, four, five, you know, fourth, fifth generation uh, are un, uh, unquestioned. So they're looking at cyberspace and space, and many of the technologies that uh, Rob was talking about uh, are in those domains, and that is where China is trying to advance its interests quickly. They think the next war is going to be fought with bits, bytes, and bots, as they say. A related uh, point that I think uh, is worthy of, of mentioning is, is we have defense supply chains, and they, and they cross borders now. So one area that has received particular attention is trusted microelectronics. Uh, we have to be able uh, to trust that the microelectronics that are part of our weapon systems uh, aren't going to be compromised. Uh, they won't fail when our warriors need them most to protect us. Uh, does that suggest we need a robust and reliable domestic U.S. capability to produce and certify uh, technologies like trusted microelectronics? There was a CRS report, I believe, a number of years ago that looked at that, and I don't remember the exact numbers at the time, but it was a, a, a very a concerning number of processors that were in our supply chain had flaws that were appeared to be intentional. You don't know exactly how those flaws would play out if a, if a missile is fired or a jet is in combat, would they play out then? We're never going to make all of our equipment in the United States. It's just the world is too complex now. We're not big enough anymore to do that. So 
certainly when we have supply partnerships with our allies, I think we can generally trust those to be in our interest. I think it is concerning that we're increasingly relying on China for many, many, many of our technology products. And I think that's a very risky path to go down. If they wanted to, they could cut those off. Uh, there's certainly some potential for uh, uh, infiltration or, or, or manipulation of those products once they get under supply. There's also a big, a big problem, frankly, with fraudulent products there. We need to do a better job. One of the things that we've argued is we need to step up our border controls. The massive amount of Chinese intellectual property theft that comes back into this country in products that are pirated or fraudulent, we should have a zero tolerance policy toward that. Let, let me also add, in, uh, in uh, several, several years, probably two decades ago, I believe it was the Defense Science Board looked at this issue, uh, and there were a uh, trusted foundry program was set up. I believe we have one remaining trusted foundry. So your idea of looking at key components and having trusted foundries here in the U.S. that hopefully are at the first generation and not two and three generations old, uh, that would be a, a very worthy uh, idea. Thank you. I, we will uh, continue for roughly 10 minutes, and, and so I want you to know there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel here. Uh, your stamina has been impressive, and, and we're grateful for your thoughtful testimony. Mr. Goodman, in your prepared testimony, you argue, uh, quote, Washington needs to do more to coordinate with states and cities, which are most directly impacted by both the opportunities and risks of economic ties to China. I've certainly heard from Hoosiers in regarding the problems they encounter conducting business in China, uh, entrepreneurs uh, all the way up to our, our large publicly traded companies. Can you provide some suggestions for us on, on how the federal government can more effectively coordinate with states and localities to counter international predatory economic policies? Well, I admit that this is more something that we're starting to explore because yeah. I, I, I um, one of the things, the lessons I learned at the last election, I mean, you know, the debate on both sides about uh, our position in the world was that it was so deeply linked to what was happening, you know, on the ground in local communities and the economies of these, um, of, of states and localities. And I think folks like me who had been focused on making the case for our international engagement were missing the, our, were not having our eye on the ball on what was actually going on. So that was the spirit of what I was trying to say. We need to understand those local challenges and problems. And so we're starting a new line of um, work at CSAS to look into those issues and try to make uh, connections with um, uh, uh, governors and mayors and local community leaders uh, to try to answer your question. I'll be honest, I don't have a good list of, of uh, recommendations today, but I think that, that it is critical to come up with um, solutions that help address both the, uh, the, the anxieties and problems economically in those um, localities and to tap into the huge opportunity that those states and, and um, um, localities can provide because they, they have huge opportunities to sell into, into overseas markets and we need uh, them to succeed at that. So we need to help them as well with that business. But I'll, I will, as we develop this program, uh, try to come up with some recommendations to help you with that. Thank you very much, and maybe one of the tens of individuals who is still tuned in to this uh, subcommittee hearing will, will have some suggestions as well. I would invite them to submit. So um, I'll just close with a, a final line of questioning. I, I have concern, uh, you might call it an international predatory uh, economic policy sort of domino theory. Not my theory, but I have concerns about this dynamic, that other countries' 
are going to observe the Chinese state capitalist model and begin adopting it, try to replicate it. Um, they, it may be ill-advised for their countries uh, or, or for their citizens, uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I think uh, there's, I, I'm under the impression that uh, the Indians increasingly are moving in this direction, the Brazilians, uh, perhaps some others. Uh, would any of you care to comment? So we've coined a term. Uh, there, there obviously was this famous uh, term, the Washington Consensus on Trade, which is a set of principles that I think, frankly, was a little too rigid for a lot of places. Uh, uh, but now that I would argue there's a Beijing Consensus on Trade, and the Chinese government is exporting that, and it's basically saying, Look at what the U.S. did. They had the financial collapse. Uh, they're not really going to be a great power anymore. Look at us. We've had this great growth. You really need to follow our model. One of the things I believe is very troubling is we basically under-resourced the State Department. So I was just down in Brazil. The State Department asked me to come down and meet with government officials down there to explain to them how we've been successful on innovation and why our model is better for them than either the Chinese model or, frankly, the European model in this case, because some of them dealt with data and technology issues. This is very happenstance. We simply don't do that very well. And I think we really have to step up our efforts to go around the world and explain to these countries why a more uh, bottom-up, market-based, but still with the right government policies around investment in research and skilled training and infrastructure and all of that, intellectual property protection, why that's the right path to innovation success. And I just don't think we do that anywhere near enough that we should. Just as a quick comment, I think this administration's focus on these issues, on China's predatory practices, as well as your hearing, is the right start. Because India, other countries have been able to get away with it because there has been no real response from the U.S. To the extent they see a response, to the extent we can educate them and, uh, and reach out, uh, we can alter the path. But if we do nothing, uh, they're going to go down the path they're on. I just put an accent on all that by saying I agree with your concern. I agree with the point that, uh, that if we're not in the game, uh, we're not going to win this argument. And so we have to do the kinds of things that were just described and the ones I talked about earlier about enabling our companies to come in with their products and services and uh, rule of law and the rest of it. And the good news is that there is still, as I said, a demand pull for our model. I think people are not stupid. They know in a lot of these countries, Myanmar, I think, knows that, that, that what China's selling is, is, is not, doesn't feel right. But if they, if, we, if they don't have an alternative, they're going to take the Chinese model because, because you know, because they don't know any better and, or we're not offering anything. So we have to be involved. Thank you. Senator Merkley, I'll allow you to bat cleanup. So I want to bring in a, a topic we haven't really addressed, and that's automation. Uh, I've seen some extraordinary examples of automation. The one that always sticks in my head uh, is uh, that of uh, a robotic dairy where the, the, the cows live in the barn and when they want to get milk, they go get milked and the machines milk them and they return and they'll get milked maybe four or five times a day instead of twice and they're very happy. And when I took a tour of this barn, the owner said, I really don't like to do this. And uh, I said, well, in what aspect? And he said, I really don't like to walk through the barn because the cows aren't used to being around people. And uh, it's just an extraordinary thing to see the, the machinery reach out 
clean the udder, sterilize it, put the cups on, take the cups off, there's no, nobody involved. In theory, having machines do all these productive roles should be a strategy to be able to increase the standard of living massively to produce goods at low cost for everyone in the world. But it creates a, a big dilemma, uh, which is um, a company spending its money on buying equipment rather than paying wages. And so what happens to the jobs? And without a job, you don't have structure to your life. You don't have income. So even if, in, in theory, the machines are contributing something, maybe it's basically not contributing in a way that creates a foundation for living wage jobs. So this is a fundamental dilemma. And uh, as we think about this, uh, we, we could note that uh, Germany has really uh, done a lot to be a machine builder. The, the making of machines and the servicing of machines, the maintaining of machines doesn't come up close to replacing the man hours of actually doing the work directly. But should the United States position itself, work massively to try to have the machine making role be something that is done here in the United States of America and, and exported to the world, or what other insights are there for us about, about the, the, the benefits and the challenges posed by automation? <clears throat> Senator, we've done an <clears throat> enormous amount of work on that question. In fact, was recently asked by the Canadian government to produce a report for the G7 ministerial six weeks ago in Montreal on this question. I am less concerned about the number of jobs. The evidence from virtually every economic study is as long as you have the right monetary policy uh, and the right labor market policies, you're not going to have structurally high unemployment. The, the real question is, are the workers who are affected by that able to move to something else? And frankly, we don't have very good policies in this country to enable that to happen. I think that's our big challenge. You alluded to the fact that should we become a machine-building country? Absolutely, we should. It's easy to forget companies like Cincinnati Millicron was the dominant machine-builder in the world. And now we don't have that anymore. Every time I visit a U.S. company, a manufacturer or a biotech company, and I walk around the shop floor or the labs, I always look at the machines and where do they build. Very few of them are built in the U.S. You've got Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Germany, et cetera. One thing we could do if we were serious about that is we could establish a Manufacturing USA Institute for machine building. We still have machine builders. Uh, we could establish a Na National Science Foundation Engineering Research Center on, on machine building and machine tools. So I couldn't agree with you more that having a strong machine building and instrument and uh, capital goods industry is very important for us. It, it creates good exports, it creates good jobs. But I think we do need some uh, help from the government to make that a reality. Senator, I, I, it's a great question. Uh, last year at the AFL-CIO's annual convention, or, or several-year convention, uh, they created a committee on the future of work. So the issue you're raising and many others is to how do workers uh, gain a proper share of the economic benefits they're creating is a key one, and it's one where it will be constantly evolving. Uh, in my testimony, I talked specifically about robotics and the Chinese uh, hope to be 70% uh, uh, self-sufficient in robotics uh, with by 2025. It's part of their plan. They bought the uh, major German firm KUKA two years ago, I believe it is. Um, uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of work servicing 
uh, robots, I worry about whether we're going to have the work actually producing them, whether we're going to be doing the technology to develop those robots, whether we're going to be making the materials to produce them, uh, to, uh, to fuel them, steel, aluminum, whatever else. Uh, if we don't do something about China's predatory practices, we're going to lose that sector as well. Can I just add uh, one other thing? This is a huge issue. I mean, the future of work is another one that we're trying to do more uh, in, uh, investigating uh, ourselves on at CSIS. We had a, an event a couple of weeks ago with two interesting speakers. One was your colleague, Senator Warner, who's done a lot of thinking, I think, on these issues. And um, he's got some ideas about uh, benefit portability, uh, about uh, tax credits for training, because companies don't have the incentive to train somebody who's going to you know, get up and leave. Um, supporting um, uh, the new economy in in several creative ways. I'm not sure all of those ideas make sense or, or gonna, are going to happen, but I think it's some interesting discussion. There's there's some interesting food for thought there. The other thing is we had the Danish finance minister on this panel, and he was talking about uh, in Denmark they have a disruption uh, a disruption council, I think it's called. Um, where they look at these issues of technology disruption and, and what its implications are. And it brings in uh, government, uh, the private sector, labor, um, and uh, they have a, and academics, and they discuss what the implications of these are. I thought that sort of thing was, was, uh, was creative and interesting. And so this is a topic we'd love to continue uh, talking to you about. Thank you all very much. Thank you, uh, Senator Merkley. Uh, I can't help um, resist the temptation to add, based on uh, your comment, Mr. Goodman, that uh, Senator Cantwell and I have introduced legislation called the Future of AI Act, uh, pertaining specifically to artificial intelligence and some of the impacts that will have in our workforce. Uh, we'd like uh, to better understand the labor implications, uh, uh, the potential policy responses that will be needed. We don't want to jump too quickly with respect to artificial intelligence as, as that technology uh, evolves. I, I want to thank each of our witnesses so much uh, for being here, sharing your expertise, uh, your perspective, your research, your uh, advice. And I know both Senator Merkley and I look forward to continuing our work with uh, each of you. Uh, in different ways moving forward. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And uh, this hearing is now adjourned.